All right, now I hope your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11 today. Let me welcome you. My name is Pastor Dale. If you're new to Seacoast, I'd love to meet you outside later and get to know you better. I love meeting new people. It's kind of the way God's wired me. There's also an insert, which is provided every week, uh, that'll help you, especially today. We're going to cover a lot of material today. We've been in a series called Everybody Hurts, and then we shifted midsummer to Everybody's Hope. Stories of God revealed, especially stories of God revealed in the midst of painful experiences. So how does God meet us when we hurt and then provide hope? Today, we're going to look at the story of how do you engage with God when your hurt is self-inflicted? Okay, pray with me. Father God, thanks so much. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the wisdom of it. Thanks for the chance to worship you. And now we just kind of pause for a second because we don't just want to study and get information, but we want to ask you to um, help us understand ourselves, help us understand you, and then change us through that process. So thanks for the glimpse of God that we're going to see as we study the life of David in Christ's name. Amen. You ever heard this phrase, I would never do, complete the sentence, come on, work with me. I would never do that. I think all of us have said that one time or another. We hear a story about some some friend, some person, somebody in the news that really did some self-destructive thing. It's like they wrecked their own lives with their own choices. And you look at that and you think, you know something, I can't believe, in fact, I would never do that is usually followed By, I can't believe I did that. Have you ever said that? See, I I know I have. I would never do that, often followed by, I can't believe I did that, followed by, you know, I don't know what got into me. And one, one of my other favorite ones I've used on myself is this one. How could, see if you can complete this, how could I have ever been so... Stupid. The word stupid just rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. How can I ever be so stupid? Because you do something and you look at it and you realize, how did I miss that? Why in the world did I do that? And it's often something that's our own sin. It's our own choice. And we walked right into it and we just never really stopped ourselves. No study of pain, hurt. And where do you find hope in the midst of it is complete without talking at least one week about the temptation that we face to do what we never dreamed we would do. History is full of examples. Life is full of examples. To one degree or another, all of us have been there, done that. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, you know, Dale, you don't understand me. I got a lot more self-control than that. I know what my morals are. I don't know what my convictions are. And you know something, I really live out my values. I, You know, this is not for me. Before you leave today, you need to realize that the man we're going to study was a man that no one would have ever guessed he would do what he did. So if you're here today and you kind of think, you know, Dale, that's, I know there's a lot of people that are like, how can I have been so stupid? But, you know, it's been a long time since I've been stupid. Then this is your stupid Sunday, okay? <laughs> because you are actually the target of this message. Because when you think that you, as it says in Scripture, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This story is for you. It's for all of us. 
The Apostle Paul kind of sets the the uh, temperament of the story in case you think that spiritual people don't do this. In Romans 7.15, he says this, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. He's been there. History is full of examples. Today's a story of one man's journey into self-inflicted pain, but I chose him because he also explains in Scripture his journey out of the ditch and back into life. So we're going to see his fall into the moral ditch, but then we're going to also turn to Psalm 51 and see how King David got out of the ditch and back in a walk with God, to which God continued to bless and use him. So open to Second Samuel chapter 11. We're going to study David, the king of Israel, the writer of the many of the Psalms. Uh, he's a guy that's described as a man after God's own heart. So here's a guy that when he was young, he faced down a giant named Goliath. Remember that? Yeah. As long as I got a little rock and a sling, I need no armor. I need no sword. I need no helmet. You know, forget the armor. You bring him on because I got a sling and I got God. And a sling plus God is better than armor without him. And, and he proved it and he took him out. And he later becomes the king of Israel and he unites the nation. And he, he's a godly king. He's a godly leader. He's one of these kind of renaissance men leaders, you know, because here's a guy that can be a warrior when he needs to be a warrior. But he sets and plays uh, the harp. I kind of have a hard time picturing that. But OK, picture the guitar picture. OK, but anyway, you know, he's you know, he's playing his music and writing love songs to God. OK, so the guy can write love songs to God, but he can also be a warrior. That's my kind of guy. He's also a guy who's going to be incredibly stupid. And we're going to see what happens. Let's study his life and his fall very quickly. And then I want to move to the psalm because this series is not about everybody hurts. It's everybody hopes. So how did he find hope in his relationship with with God, ours, our relationship with Christ? How do we find hope even after we have self-destructed? Here we go. Second Samuel chapter 11. Now, to understand chapter 11, you know, it begins this way. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and they besieged the city of Rebah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Stop right there. To really understand David's fall, you need to understand this simple point. David stayed where he should have never stayed. I believe driven by his pride. You gotta go back to chapter 10, chapter 8, 9, 10 in front of this. And I don't have time to read it, and, but I can tell you what's been going on. David has basically been rising to power and wiping out the enemies of Israel one at a time. Triumph after triumph after triumph. Late in chapter 10, I'm back. Here we go. Good. See, it's a comeback sermon. So uh, late in chapter 10, the reality is that's why we're putting a new sound system in, by the way, in the next few weeks. Amen. Amen. Yeah. OK, so it's coming. But late in chapter 10, it basically says this. It says that the the, 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 the Arameans, I have a hard time saying that the Arameans who are kind of the Persians, they were the power dogs. They were the big enemy of Israel. And it talks about late in chapter 10 how David went with his warriors, went out 
to do battle with them, wipes them out, takes out, I think it's 7,000. In fact, let me just look. i got to get my numbers right. Okay. Takes out seven, takes out 700 charioteers uh, of the Arameans, 40,000 horsemen, and he struck down the commander of their army. So he has this big victory. And what happens is, see, they are the big dog. So he gets them. They run for the hills. They retreat. They give up. Now, all of a sudden, the big dog is defeated. And then it says all the other kings of the area say, whoa, we're going to make peace with Israel because they just whipped the big dog. So when you whip the big dog, the little dogs all go, yes, how can we serve you? And that was what was going on. And the only example, the only exception. Grab the handheld. No, I'm back. I'll grab them both. The only exception, the only exception were the sons of Ammon. Now, the reality was, um, so now they're, they're kind of left as the light resistance. Think of that. So what happens is David becomes prideful. Now, you've got to understand something else. Every other time in Scripture where David before this is going to go into battle to take on enemies, he always does two things. He seeks God. He prays. He gets with God. He, he asks the Lord, what should I do? Should I or should I not do into the, go into this battle? He always seeks God and he, also, and he always goes into battle with his troops. This time, he does neither. And I think it's because when we become prideful, when we're on a roll, that's when we're set up for a moral, a moral failure. And that was David's case. you got to see the pridefulness going on under the surface because I think it drives him to stay where he should not have stayed. He should have been with his army. Second, verse 2, David saw what he should not have seen. If the first is the temptation of the kind of the pride of life, the second is the lust of the eyes. Now it says this. And when evening had come, David arose from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance, which tells me something. He looked and then he studied. Okay. In other words, he didn't notice. Oh, yeah. There's a woman up there bathing. Better go. Let's go peer off the other side of the roof. Okay. He, He checks her out at least twice. And says, this woman is very beautiful. He saw what he should not have seen. There's the lust of the eyes. We're not sure why David was up there on the roof. Maybe he couldn't sleep because he was feeling guilty. He wasn't with his troops. Maybe he was worried about the troops. There's no cell phones to to do a quick update. Maybe he was bored. Uh, We don't know why he was up there. Maybe he was surveying his great kingdom out of his pridefulness. That, wow, finally we're about ready to be at rest and not at war. But for whatever reason, he stayed where he shouldn't have stayed. And that's the first lesson, by the way, on temptation. Don't go and stay where you shouldn't go and stay, where you know temptation is hanging out. And then he saw what he shouldn't have seen. He dwelt on her beauty. And then thirdly, he sought what he had no right to seek. He exercised the lust of the flesh. Verse 3 says, so David sent and inquired about the woman. Who is this? And one said... Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came, that is, came to the palace, perhaps to dine with him, he then lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Verse five. 
David sought what he had no right to. He sought another man's wife. He saw, he invited her, he took a risk. We don't know the rest of the story behind the scenes. Maybe David thought, you know, she's a beautiful gal. I'm lonely. No harm, no foul in having dinner with a beautiful woman. After all, I'm the king. She's the uh, military wife. Let's meet with the military wife. You know, you know, let's support the military. Okay. So, so the reality is we don't really know if his, maybe in the front end he had pure motives. We don't know, but he invites her and the story just goes right to it. The bottom line is he invites her, probably has dinner with her, has her as his guest. Next thing I know, they're in the bedroom, sleeps with her. She ends up getting pregnant. He sought what he had no right to seek. He exercised the lust of the flesh. By the way, this week, write down this reference. First John chapter two, 15 to 17. Because first John chapter two, 15 to 17 talks about temptation and it talks about we've got to be careful and guard against uh, the 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 wrong affections and loves. And he, and he names three, the 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 uh, the the pride, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Isn't it interesting that in this beginning of this story, David exercises all three sins. See, David's sin does not start with adultery. That's coming. It starts with pride. It progresses to lust and, and into the lust of the eyes, dwelling, looking at what he doesn't have and thinking, wow, I, what, man, life would be so good if I had that, if I had her. And then the lust of the flesh. He seeks what he had no right to seek. And then he sinned and began to suffer the consequences. Then he sleeps with her. She feels guilty. She goes home. She's pregnant. He learns that she's pregnant, and now he's got another whole problem. He's got to cover up his sin. So now he's now he commits the sin of the cover-up. And it's in verses 5 to 27. And we don't have time to go into all the details, but let me tell it to you, and you'll read it this week if you go through the five appointments with God with me, okay? But here's the deal. Basically, he says, i got to cover this up. So first he gets a good idea. Here's the easy way to do it. He invites her husband home from the battlefront. And he gives him like, you know, gives him a few days off with his wife. And he, he think, you know, wow, what a treat, right? So what's any military man going to do when he comes home from the battlefield and his very beautiful wife is waiting on him? But this guy is different. Uriah uh, decides that, you know something, uh, it's not honorable for me to be with my wife when I'm supposed to be on the battlefront with my comrades. They're out there sleeping in the dirt. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. And, 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 he, and, he, and he passes on the offer. So he doesn't go into her house. He doesn't spend the night with her. Okay, instead he sleeps with some other smelly soldiers at the gate. What's up with that? You know, but the reality is that's what he does. So, so, you know, so everyone knows he didn't go there. So then David says, oh my gosh, the guy has too much self-control. So what do you do? He invites him to another party and he, and he, and he lays out the really good stuff and he gets him drunk. Thinking now you got a drunken soldier who's missed his wife, who's very beautiful. This is a formula for success, right? And, and, you know, and what's he do? He again passes. Even drunk, the guy has enough integrity to not go be with his wife. Let me tell you something. I'd be sober or drunk. I'd be with my wife. (laughs) Amen? From the guys in the crowd, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Forget the comrades. But the reality is he passes. So now David still knows. Everybody knows he's not slept with his wife. He's been on the battlefront. So David has to go to the next level. And you see the moral decay of this guy. Here's a guy with a, a heart for God. He's a godly guy, but he's got to cover his own tail and his reputation. So he sends a plot back. He writes a note, seals it. 
uses Uriah to carry it back to Joab, the commander of his troops, and he says, here's what I want you to do, because they're, they're laying siege to this relatively small city, you know, a walled city, and all they got to do is wait them out, and they're going to get hungry, thirsty, etc. They're going to surrender to Israel, no bloodshed. They're, you know, they, they've got this city of Rabbah. But, but instead, he says, I'm telling you right now, I want you to put Uriah in the front of the harshest part of the battle. I want you to attack the city and press hard against the city gates and against the city and and do battle, even though I know this is going to put your troops at risk. And then when they're really at risk, I want you to withdraw from around Uriah. And sure enough, the enemy does David's dirty work. They attack the city. They get too close to the city walls where they're targets for the archers and the you know, it even says they're so close that a woman could throw a throw a, a stone off the wall and, and, and kill somebody. I mean, the, the bottom line is this. David murders Uriah. He arranges for him to be murdered. And in the in the same action, he loses a bunch of other troops. We don't know how many. But Uriah and other innocent men lose their life because of this guy's one night stand. With a beautiful woman. Because he stayed where he shouldn't stay. He saw what he shouldn't see. He sought what he had no right to seek. He sinned and began to suffer the consequences of it. His own pain. And he tried to cover it up and deal with it in a way that was disgusting to God. And the passage ends in verse 26 and says this. But when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, that, that, uh, that Uriah her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David then sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife. And then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. Now, I expect chapter 12 to go like this. Therefore, the holy God of the universe dropped a rock out of the sky onto David's head. And he was never seen again. And God said, if that's the kind of king you're going to be, you're not my king. You would expect God to take him out. That's what I'm expecting. But instead, what happens as you move forward is God comes to David and uses a prophet named Nathan to come to David and in, in a way trick David and unveil David's sin and the fact that, you know, God is smart, man. God knew what was going on. So God works to bring his sin to the surface. And then David begins to deal with his own self-inflicted pain. By the way, the baby dies. David has to mourn the loss of his son because of this sin. So, how does David go from the end of chapter 11? to writing Psalm 51 and many other psalms of worship to God. How does David recover from the self-inflicted pain of his own choice, his own choice to sin? Because I think that's where I can relate to David, because I sin, you sin, and if you think you don't sin, then you got a double problem because you're blind to your sin. And the reality is, uh, pride has already gotten you in trouble. Uh, you know, so the reality is, how do we learn how to deal with our sin and the pain that it causes and, and, and to...
and to let God meet us uh, so that um, he gets us back on track. So now flip from 2 Samuel 11 to uh, let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You know, and on a future date, I'll probably cycle back and do a whole sermon on both of these passages because they're so rich. But I wanted you to see them together today because the series we're in is helping us process pain in our life. And in this case, the pain of self-inflicted pain, okay, when we messed up. And, and how does God meet us in that? And here's what we learned from Psalm 51. Number one, identify with the root of David's pain because we have a common root, and that is unconfessed sin. Psalm 51 begins this way. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What we learn are three quick observations. I've typed them out. You can fill in a few blanks if you want to track with me. Number one, my relationship with God, though eternally secure in Christ, requires daily maintenance. It requires that God wants me to be bringing my sin to God and confessing it quickly whenever I do it. That's what I call daily maintenance of sin. But I wanted you to understand that there is a difference between coming to God and saying, God, uh, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need salvation in Christ. And you, and you, and you seek that forgiveness for your sin. Because according to scripture, when you accept Jesus Christ, all your sin is forgiven. Hebrews chapter 10 very clearly says that Christ died once for all sin. It says, and where there is forgiveness, uh, there no longer remains offering for sin. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. Okay, so Jesus, from Jesus talking about how uh, when you come to him, you are you are spiritually born, you become a child of God, and you are completely cleansed of all sin, past, present, and future. Now that's in terms of my eternal relationship with God on this level, okay? So I am a child of God. Nothing I do can change that. Clearly taught in Scripture. So why are we talking about David confessing his sin? It's because I think what we're talking about here is the horizontal level, not the vertical level, but the horizontal level in everyday life, because as a child of God, I have a relationship with my Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus. And the reality is, whenever I disobey my Heavenly Father, whenever I sin, it causes a, a distance, a, a break of fellowship and relationship or friendship with my God. So God's ability to really work in my life and empower my life is, is wounded by my broken relationship when I sin. And it's that same way in a human relationship. A lot of us have kids. And the reality is, if our kids sin against us and, 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 and openly disobey us, or our, okay, that causes, it's not like, they don't, they don't, they don't give up their kidship, okay? They're still a child of God. They're still loved deeply. You love your kids deeply even when they sin against you. You're not gonna throw them at, you're no longer a Burke, you're no longer in the family, you're gonna love and forgive them unconditionally, but, if you want their relationship to be good, when we sin against each other, we need to confess our sin and deal with it. We need to humbly come, and it's that way with God. We're talking here about the importance of maintaining that relationship with God on a daily basis. It's because of the second point, and that is, what he's saying is, my relationship with God is damaged by unconfessed sin. 
Uh, later this week, uh, write this reference if you want to go deeper. Uh, go to Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5. Psalm 32, 3 to 5. David actually describes the anguish going on in his life and his soul whenever he was just living in this season of unconfessed, undealt with sin, and he wasn't dealing with it, and he knew it was there, and he says it was a, it was draining him emotionally. It was draining him spiritually. It was even draining him physically. It was affecting his physical body. So it affected his, his, his spirit, his emotions, even his physical body was being affected by the, by the guilt of his sin that he wasn't dealing with. We need to deal with it. Because finally, my relationship with God must always be based on God's goodness and grace, not mine. I, I, I want to surface that because three times in verses one and two, notice what he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to my, um, uh, my thorough repentance. Is that what he says? Uh, God, please, uh, please, let me see. Please blot out, uh, wash me thoroughly because I have now done good things for you. Uh, is that what he says? No. See, it's always based on this. He says, be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. The Hebrew word for loving kindness is the closest word in Hebrew that could be translated grace. The concept really means grace. It's that undeserved love and kindness of God. When it's not deserved, that's grace. Be, be kind. Uh, he says, I need your loving kindness. Uh, blot out my transgressions with your compassion. It's the compassion and grace and loving kindness of God that is the basis of me coming to Him, not my performance. Man, what a, what a sweet relationship. You realize how different that is from other religions? There is no other religion on the face of the earth that invites you to come and experience forgiveness by grace. It's a grace-based relationship with God. And it's sweet. And that's what David sought. And that was the beginning of his recovery. Secondly, David faced the root of his problem, which is a common cause that we have, the common root of our sin, and that is it comes from within us. It's not something someone makes us do. We choose it when we sin. Verse 3 to 6, just catch the big idea here. For I know, David says, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. In other words, what he's saying is, look, I'm going to face it with honesty. Denial accomplishes nothing. I want to be honest with God about my sin. Against you and you only I have sinned, God, and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, God, you set the standard. And when I sin, I'm really sinning against you. Now, he also sinned against Bathsheba and her husband and the nation of Israel. I think he sinned against all of them. But David is saying, you know, at the root of all sin is a holy God. And, and when we sin, it's not that we just offended some other person. We, As children of God, our sin is always against God. Because he is the holy standard of, against which we determine sin. That what we really deserve is not mercy, but to be judged. Look at the next verse. He says, so that God, you are justified, verse 4, when you speak and blameless when you judge. Notice, God, when you speak judgment against me, when you tell me that I messed up, I screwed up, I sinned, you are justified in doing that. And if you want to judge me, you are justified in that. 
You're not, you're not violating your holiness. In other words, God, you owe me nothing. Our culture has an image of God that God owes us forgiveness. Just like Santa Claus owes us a gift on Christmas. That's the cultural view of God. It's not the biblical view. The biblical view is that when, because of our sin, we really deserve judgment, but yet God shocks us with mercy. He shocks us with grace. See, and therefore, David realizes that, look, his problem is not the sins against him, but the sins within him. You know, that sin is rooted within him. In fact, jump down to verse, uh, verse 5. He says, Behold, God, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. In other words, he's not saying that his mom was a loose woman that had some sinful fling that, you know, got pregnant and had David. That wasn't true, David. That wasn't true, David's story. What he's saying is, I realize, God, that from conception, when life begins, I am by nature sinful. That apart from Christ, that's my nature. That's my nature. Now, Christ wants to transform us. But that's the old person. Before Christ, apart from Christ, when we live apart from the power of His Spirit, we slip right back into into what comes naturally. What comes naturally to you is not holiness, it's sin. Now, you will not hear this from our culture. You will not hear this from uh, the assessment of why people do what they do. Because our culture is all about telling whoever sins that, well, they wouldn't have done that unless they were a victim of something. I mean, there was something done to them or they would not have done that. And I'm not taking away the reality that sometimes hurt people hurt people. People that have experienced hurt growing up tend to pass that on and hurt other people. That's true. But the reality is the root of sin is within us, not in the culture. You could put a person in a perfect world, in a perfect environment, like the Garden of Eden, okay, and they still have this capacity now to sin. In fact, in the garden, they exercised their freedom to sin even before it was their nature. It's kind of heavy, but I just want you to get the big idea that the root of our problem is within us. So it should really help us see, wow, God doesn't owe us anything. But then, here's the kicker. His road to recovery was he began to see how thoroughly God dealt with his sin. And in verses 7 through uh, 19, we have a, a rich passage. And uh, let me just give you the highlights. Verse 7, he says, So God, you purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones which have been broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. See, what he's saying in 7 through 9 is he has a new renewed certainty of forgiveness. What he's saying is this. God, when you by grace forgive, you do it thoroughly. You don't just forgive part of my sin. You forgive all of it. 1 John 1, 9, great verse if you want to write it down. It says, if we confess our sin that is in Christ, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In other words, any other sins that you don't even know you've done, God is in the business because of what Christ did on the cross, giving you complete and utter total forgiveness. Wow. 
That's grace. Out of that, David then prays, then change my heart. Create in me, verse 10, look at it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because the Christian life is designed to be lived in response to grace. It's not designed to be lived where we try to perform our way back out of the ditch. It's by acknowledging that we screwed up and we're in the ditch by our own stupid choice into sin. And then we confess and we come to the cross and we understand what Jesus did dying for the sin on the cross. And, and wow, then we understand the thoroughness of God's grace. And then that renews our heart. So that now at the heart level, we begin to desire to turn away from sin because you fall in love with a God who loves you enough to do such a radical expression of love. Because, see, it's not human nature. It's not easy for me to be sinned against by you and then turn around and just give you total forgiveness when you, unless you kind of come and work for it, you know, prove that you deserve it, do something nice for me. When you start being nice to me, then I'll be nice back to you. You ever said that? See, that's, that's us in our sinfulness. God doesn't operate that way. He says, you come to me humbly with a contrite and broken heart and I forgive you and then I will renew your heart so now you begin to love me. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then you get a renewed sense of assurance of God's presence and power. That's verse 11. I don't have time to unpack the rest of it, but just get the outline. So when you read it this week again in the five appointments with God, you see this. He had a renewed assurance of God's presence and power. Through his spirit, a renewed joy of stimulating his godly desires. Look at verse 12. I got to take time for that. Here we go. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. He's saying, wow, when I get excited about Christ, when I get excited about the joy of my salvation in Christ, sustains me. It creates a willing spirit because Christianity is never designed to be a have to Obedience. It's designed to be a want-to obedience where grace stimulates our love and love stimulates our obedience. That's the goal here at Seacoast. Passage goes on to talk about how that stimulates my godly desires in verse 12. In verse 13 to 19, it gives him a renewed passion and purpose for his life. He says, God, you do this and I will tell others about you. We'll bring life to people. We'll sing praise to you. And then I'll bring sacrifices and offerings. But everything in response to grace. Read it this week. But it begins in our lives by saying, you know, at times I'm my worst enemy. Self-inflicted pain is... One of the worst pains, probably the most common pain that we have in our lives. When you experience it, go to Psalm 51. And then the backdrop of Psalm 51, remember the cross. The greatest expression of why God is full of loving kindness and grace. Jesus left us a tradition as a church that we remember the cross and focus on grace As we eat a meal together, a simple meal that reminds us of the body of Christ sacrificed and the blood of Christ shed for our sins. Think of this as an extension of today's sermon. 
Let's pray. And the team will come to lead us with communion. Father God, thank you so much for the incredible gift of grace. That you take our sins and though our sins are like scarlet, you make them as white as snow. You purify us. Not because of our works, but because of your work. So Lord, as we come to the Lord's table now, we focus on your work, not ours. Create in us a clean heart as we do in Christ's name. Amen.